Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, college professor, PhD student, and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. Welcome to part two of Lauren McCluskey's story, When a Cry for Help Wasn't Enough. So if you haven't listened to part one, I urge you to go back and listen to it before you listen to this one. It's only about 20 minutes long, so it shouldn't take you too long. And even if you wanted to re-listen to it before we dive into the rest of the story, it shouldn't take you too long. As a reminder, this episode is rated a five on my serious crime scale. In part one, we learned that Lauren's short-term ex-boyfriend, Melvin Rowland, had lied to her about his age and name, and she discovered that he was a registered sex offender who had recently served a 10-year prison sentence for his sex crime. We left off just after Lauren confronted him and broke up with him in her dorm room, Friday, October 9th. And that brings us to the next morning, October 10th, when Lauren let Roland use her car one last time just to get him out of her room and on his way. So on October 10th, the day after Lauren confronted Roland about his lies and he took her car to run those errands, of course, Lauren was concerned about how she would get it back. And she became even more concerned because she started getting text messages from random numbers all claiming to be Roland's friends. One said, quote, why'd you break up with the big guy? He really loves you, end quote. Another text was about her car, telling her that his friend would drop it off instead of him because Roland was too upset and hurt to see her. The text escalated and one even told Lauren to go kill herself. Even though these texts appeared to be from Roland's friends, Lauren had a hunch, and I am 99.9999% sure she was right, that somehow these texts were really coming from Roland. He was just somehow disguising his number or using an app where he could text from fake numbers. After all, these texts had the exact same grammatical errors as Roland's texts usually did. These texts, of course, freaked Lauren out, and so she did what any college girl would do. She called her mom. When Lauren's mom, Jill, got involved that day, she took care of business. Jill called Campus Dispatch and told them she was, quote, very upset and worried, end quote. She explained to them her daughter's situation and told them all about Roland and how he had lied to her about his identity and age and even that he was a registered sex offender. Jill's mom even specifically made it clear that Roland was a threat to her daughter, saying, quote, I'm worried he's dangerous, end quote. 
The dispatcher on the other end assured Jill that campus police could provide an escort for Lauren, and then the dispatcher called Lauren to confirm the assistance. However, according to the Salt Lake City Tribune, Lauren at first declined the assistance for whatever reason. I think she was just trying to de-escalate the situation and do this whole thing as painlessly and smoothly as possible without, you know, making this criminal any angrier than she needed to. So she told the dispatcher that Roland was going to drop the vehicle off at her dorm on campus and that she did feel comfortable with him doing that. According to the Tribune, the dispatcher said she would have campus security officers near Lauren's dorm just in case. I'm not sure what time all of this was, but Lauren did end up calling back to campus dispatch at about 5 p.m. October 10th. She told them her car was actually dropped off at the university football stadium, so she just needed campus security to give her a ride to go pick it up. So campus security took Lauren to retrieve her car. After this, Lauren's parents breathed a sigh of relief. Campus police and security had done their job and ensured their daughter's safety, at least for the night. According to Dateline, Lauren's parents assumed that now that campus police knew about Roland and knew how dangerous he was, that they would continue to do their job and, you know, protect Lauren from any further harm. And Lauren, she was just glad he was gone and that she could simply move on with her life and just forget she ever met the dude. But unfortunately, that was not the case. On October 12th, just two days later, Lauren began getting more suspicious text messages from, again, people claiming to be Roland's friends. This time, though, they were extra strange with the messages claiming that Roland was dead. They said he had killed himself because of the breakup and it was all Lauren's fault. One of the messages even claimed he had been in a car accident, then he was at the hospital, and then he eventually died. According to Dateline, Lauren blocked all of the numbers that had been sending her these texts, and she called her mom. She was worried, and I can only imagine how upset and shaken and even annoyed she must have been. But Lauren and her mom, Jill, discussed it and talked through it. Jill said, quote, We talked about, you know, he couldn't have died in a car accident because it would have been reported that there was a fatal accident, end quote. Eventually, though, Lauren saw some social media posts from Roland, so she knew for a fact that he wasn't dead. But then she got a text that almost seemed to be baiting her. The text said, will you come to funeral? Lauren responded, saying, I know he's alive. Please leave me alone and don't text this number. I got police involved. And that's exactly what she did. On October 12th, Lauren contacted campus police for the first time. According to the Salt Lake City Tribune, Lauren reported the suspicious messages to police and explained to them how she knew they were not true because she had seen social media posts from his personal account. According to the Tribune, Lauren told police she did not feel in danger or threatened from the texts, but she did feel like Roland or his friends, if it really was his friends texting, were trying to lure her out of her dorm room. Y'all, I listened to her call to campus police, and even though she didn't come out and blatantly say she felt scared or in danger, you could tell in her voice that she was indeed scared, like she sounded fearful. In her call to police, she said, quote, I feel like they're trying to lure me somewhere, end quote. However, according to Dateline, university police told her there wasn't much they could do without any threats or messages that were criminal in nature. But they did ask Lauren to call back if the situation escalated, 
which it did. The next day, October 13th, Lauren received more messages from Roland, but this time they completely sent her into a full-on panic. And understandably so, Roland basically told her that he'd post a compromising, sexually explicit photo of her on social media unless she paid him $1,000 to keep the photos private. I mean, this was basically extortion, which is illegal. Lauren, not wanting to ruin her image or good name in any way, and of course, in an act of fear and desperation, she got out her phone and sent Roland the money via Venmo. But after she did it, with a sick and incredibly scared feeling in her gut, Lauren called campus police again, and she and Alex went to the campus police station to file a report. But what's weird, and apparently Alex thought so too, according to the Deseret News, is that Two officers greeted Lauren and Alex when they first arrived at the station, but they never took them to an interview room for a statement. Alex recalled that the officers just didn't seem particularly interested in the case, and they actually suggested it was simply a scammer who hacked into Lauren's ex-boyfriend's phone and none of it was legitimate. They suggested, perhaps, it was all a scam, that both she and Roland were being victimized by someone hacking into his phone and sending her all the messages, particularly trying to just get money from her. Um, what the hell, Utah? Seriously, all of this happened and this was now the second time this girl was reaching out to police for help about her nutso ex and you guys think it's a fucking scam? That doesn't even add up in my head and I'm nowhere near qualified to be a police officer. But I could damn sure recognize a blackmailing extorting ex when I see one. According to Dateline, during Lauren's visit to the police station to file this report, she also told them about the time she caught Roland peeping through her window, listening to her phone conversation. But campus police, again, just dismissed it. Regarding the police's response, Alex said, quote, I figured they thought we were just overreacting in a way, end quote. Alex told the Deseret News that one of the officers did look Roland up on the campus directory, and he told Lauren that Roland seemed like a, quote, pretty good guy, end quote, because he had only been stopped for a traffic ticket on campus. However, if you're wondering the same thing I am, then you're probably wondering how the hell these guys could even find him in the campus directory because he wasn't a student there. I don't know any college that keeps a directory of non-students. And sure enough, it was later revealed that they weren't even looking up the right guy. They were looking up some student in their database who just happened to have the same name as Melvin Rowland. In response, though, Lauren showed the two officers Rowland's mugshot and told them he was a sex offender. Still, the officers just didn't seem particularly worried about it, but they told Lauren that a detective would be in touch to follow up with her. But hoping to spur them along and somewhat unsatisfied with how campus police were handling her case, Lauren made contact with the larger Salt Lake City Police Department. She asked them when police were going to make an arrest, but the Salt Lake City Police Department followed their normal protocol and routed her back to campus police because the extortion was under the university's jurisdiction, not Salt Lake City's. But while Lauren was still on the line, the dispatcher with the Salt Lake City PD explicitly told the university dispatcher, quote, she's got a case number pending, but she's received additional blackmail threats, end quote. Dateline reported that campus police at this point told Lauren they'd follow up with her again in three days. 
For the next several days, Lauren repeatedly called the university PD. According to the Salt Lake City Tribune, Lauren spoke with Officer Miguel Deras. She spoke with him by phone, in person, and also by text messages. Dateline reported that Lauren and the officer exchanged a total of 16 calls and or texts. And she even shared with campus police those photos that Roland was blackmailing her with because she was just so embarrassed and deeply concerned about them getting out. She hoped that by sharing her photos with Officer Dedas, the person whom she was completely trusting to help her with her situation, they would realize the urgency and make an arrest for extortion as soon as possible. After all, Roland had committed an outright crime. Meanwhile, Lauren was still receiving harassing text messages from Roland. Many days later, on Friday, October 19th, nearly a week after Lauren initially made contact with campus police, Lauren still hadn't heard back from the detective assigned to her case. The Salt Lake City Tribune reports that detective to be Kayla Dalif, who apparently had actually been working on other investigations from October 16th through October 19th, not Lauren's. So when Lauren still hadn't heard from Detective Dalif by October 19th, she again reached out to the Salt Lake City Police Department because she received another text message that day that really scared her. That text read, what did you tell the cops? We know everything. Again, in Lauren's call to Salt Lake City PD, you can hear the fear and the agony in her voice. She said, quote, I'm worried because I've been working with the campus police at the U and last Saturday I reported and I haven't gotten an update, but someone contacted me today. Someone who is harassing me said that they know everything about the police, end quote. But unfortunately, she was once again bounced back to campus police. Later that day, Detective Dalif returned Lauren's call, but told Lauren she wouldn't be back to work until October 23rd, which was still four days away. But she told Lauren to call back for the millionth time, it seems, if she received another message from Roland trying to lure her away. That detective also told Lauren that the whole thing was probably a scam, that someone was just simply trying to scam her. The same thing that the other officers had told her. That weekend, according to the Deseret News, Lauren sent three screenshots via text message to campus police, all documenting Roland's criminal history and his continued harassment. Still, nothing was done about this guy. Then on Monday, October 22nd, Lauren received yet another suspicious text, but this time the person was claiming to be the deputy chief of police at the university. The text asked her to go to the police station on campus. This sounded so fishy to Lauren, and she knew it was Roland again, texting her from a spoofed number. She figured he must be trying to lure her out of her dorm room yet again. According to the Salt Lake City Tribune, Lauren called Officer Dedas to report the text messages immediately around 10.39 a.m. that Monday, October 22nd. But instead of acting concerned or even slightly bothered by the situation, Deras told Lauren to simply ignore the text, and he never reported Lauren's concern to his superiors. But hello, impersonating an officer is a crime. This guy was committing crimes all over the place, and the University of Utah police were just blatantly dismissing it all. This baffles me so much. I seriously don't understand how she could report this guy over and over and over again, yet they literally did nothing to help her. 
Later that day, around 3 p.m., Roland went to Lauren's dorm, presumably looking for Lauren, but she wasn't there. So what's super chilling is that because he had been to her dorm so much, the other residents knew him and actually befriended him. So even though Lauren wasn't there, he just waited for her in the lobby, hanging out with some of her friends and acquaintances for nearly three hours until around 6 p.m. To me, this is super weird and super creepy. I mean, this practically 40-year-old man is just kicking it like a college kid. Uh, no. Weird. Anyway, later that night, on October 22nd, around 8.20 p.m., Lauren was returning to her dorm room from a night class, talking to her mom on the phone. Jill said her daughter sounded upbeat, happy, and positive, like maybe all of this would soon be behind her. She even told her mom that she was about to go home to her room and finish up a class assignment that was due later that night at midnight. Jill said Lauren called her as Jill was getting ready to run on the Stairmaster and Matt, Lauren's dad, was in the next room doing yoga. So Jill put the call on speakerphone so she could finish her workout and so that both she and Matt could hear Lauren. Lauren was happy because she had taken a quiz in her class that night and she did well on it. She was just about to wrap up the call saying, I love you, mom, when Jill suddenly heard some rustling and brushing around and her daughter screamed, no, no, no. Then the line went silent. According to the Salt Lake City Tribune, Roland had snuck up behind her while she was talking on the phone, grabbed her, which made her drop her cell phone and bag, and then he dragged her away into the parking lot, ultimately forcing her into the backseat of a car. Not his car, clearly, but some car he had driven onto campus. I'm not sure exactly how long Roland kept her in the car, but at some point between 8.23 and 8.38 p.m., Roland shot Lauren multiple times in the car and walked away from her lifeless body. At 8.38 p.m., Roland then called a woman whom he had met online on a dating site and asked her to pick him up. Y'all, this fool went on a whole date as if it were a totally normal thing to do after, you know, you had just murdered another human being. This guy went to dinner with this woman at a restaurant and then went to her home in downtown Salt Lake City, where he ended up taking a shower. According to the Tribune, the woman then dropped Roland off at a coffee shop later that night. Meanwhile, even though they were 600 miles away in Pullman, Lauren's parents were frantically calling campus police to try and figure out what happened to their daughter. Immediately after they heard Lauren screaming, they left Jill's phone connected to Lauren's call just in case, while Matt used his phone to call police. He explained to them everything Jill had heard. About five minutes later, a medical student's voice sounded through on the other end of the line, and she told Jill that Lauren's computer, phone, and backpack were there on the ground, but Lauren was nowhere in sight. When police went to the parking lot around 8.32 p.m., they found Lauren's belongings, but still no Lauren, so a search for her immediately began. Between 8.32 and 9.55 p.m. that night, all Lauren's parents could do was just wait and hope and pray. They had no idea what had happened to their daughter. Matt told the Deseret News, quote, I really thought this was going to be one of those situations where it's all going to be resolved and all the fear and uncertainty would just go away. I thought we were going to find her. I really thought we would, end quote. Finally, around 9.55 p.m., police discovered Lauren's body in the back of that car, and Lauren's track coach called Jill and Matt to relay the tragic news. 
Matt said, quote, I was just stunned. It wasn't even like I could work through any emotion at that point. I think I just said, no, 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 that can't be. It was like a physical trauma. It was like being hit with a baseball bat, end quote. After the murder made the news and a manhunt ensued for Melvin Rowland, the woman who had been on the date with him that night recognized him and called the police. The police finally found Roland late into the night at around 12.46 a.m. on October 23rd, and they followed him on foot. Roland ended up going into the Trinity African Methodist Episcopal Church in Salt Lake City, and police followed shortly behind him. Upon entering, though, they discovered that Roland had fatally shot and killed himself in that church. A few days after Lauren's tragic murder and Roland's fortunate suicide, information about Melvin Roland began pouring in. He had actually spent a good part of his life locked up behind bars, starting with attempted sexual assault of a teen girl in 2004 and a 2012 parole hearing where he admitted to raping the teen and two other women. In 2016, he even threatened that if a parole agent were to come to his home and conduct a field visit, he, quote, might become violent, end quote. But to top it all off, the family discovered something even more shocking, another hidden secret about Roland that if the police had only done their job, they would have realized just how dangerous he was. News media, diligently doing their job, revealed that Roland was on parole the entire time, and him even having any type of social media at all was against his parole, not to mention that him extorting Lauren was damn sure a violation of his parole. So, to really put you in a frenzy, let's get technical. All those times Lauren called the police department, both the University of Utah and the larger Salt Lake City PD, the only thing the person on the other end of the line had to do was click a button or make a simple phone call to see if Roland was on parole. You see, parole is an extension of prison and people on parole don't enjoy the same freedoms that those who are not on parole do because they are technically supposed to be supervised by the prison system. So if they would have only checked even once to see if this guy was on parole, it would have most likely led to a parole violation and sleazy, nasty Roland would have been sent right back to prison where he belonged. So why didn't the university ever stop to check and see if this guy was on parole, even though they knew he was a registered sex offender and they knew he was dangerous? Here's the thing. The university itself didn't even know the answer to this question. In an interview with Dateline, the then vice president of student affairs, Barbara Snyder, responded to this with, quote, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know why that didn't happen. End quote. At a press conference on October 25th, University Police Chief Dale Brophy said, quote, We did believe that Roland and or his associates both were threatening her financially and reputationally, but there was no indication from Lauren to us at any point in this investigation that he was threatening physical harm, end quote. Um, I call BS on that for sure. First, Lauren sounded scared in every phone call she made. What was she supposed to do exactly? How much more could she continue to do the right thing and seek help? Also, it's a bunch of BS because I don't think they did believe her about anything because they kept consistently telling her it was probably just a scam. 
On November 2nd, 11 days after the murder, the president of the University of Utah, Ruth Watkins, ordered an independent investigation to review university police protocols and, quote, actions taken by individual officers, end quote, in the days and week before Lauren was killed. The review team consisted of three individuals, two former commissioners of the Utah Department of Public Safety, John T. Nielsen and Keith Squires, and the third person was Sue Reisling, former police chief at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So these people knew what they were doing. And all I can say is thank goodness they did review the action of the university's police officers because listen to this. The Salt Lake City Tribune reported that the officer Lauren confided in and texted and called and even shared her photos with to prove the extortion. Yeah, him, Officer Deadass. That asshole showed another officer his phone and bragged about having nude photos of a girl on his phone and being able to look at them whenever he wanted. Luckily, the officer no longer works there and has left the force for an unknown reason, but I can imagine it probably has something to do with this case. After reviewing the entire situation and all of the details, the review team released its report over a month later on December 19th. In that report, there were several discrepancies and missed opportunities for the university to help Lauren, with the first being when Lauren's friends and resident assistant began reporting issues to campus housing and also when the detective assigned to Lauren's case was out of the office or whatever and another detective was not assigned to her case during that time. The review's primary conclusion, according to Dateline, was that there were serious problems and shortcomings, both systemically and individually, that contributed to Lauren's death, and there were 30 recommendations for change. Included in those recommendations was the first most obvious. The campus police department was understaffed with only 30 officers to over 30,000 students. I'm not super great at math, but that ratio is definitely uneven. Also, the report revealed that the university was not equipped or trained to handle dating and relationship violence, so it recommended hiring a special victim advocate as well as training all of its officers about interpersonal violence issues. Basically, the report said, you people were not trained or equipped to handle the situation and you need to seriously change up your policies, protocols, and training before something tragic like this occurs again. So, could Lauren's death have been prevented? In my mind, absolutely. However, even after all of these recommendations for change, Ruth Watkins, the president of the university, still defended the University of Utah and their safety protocols, saying, quote, the report does not offer any reason to believe this tragedy could have been prevented, end quote. Jill McCluskey responded to the president's comment saying, quote, that made me sick to my stomach and I just couldn't believe that she said that, end quote. Matt McCluskey said that nobody really believes Watkins' statement and I have to agree with him. That statement is whack and she was deflecting what was inevitable, that this could have been prevented if only the police did more, more of anything, more caring and more of taking Lauren seriously and just more of their job. Since the incident, a lot has changed at the University of Utah, starting with the fact that the university has now implemented the recommendations from that review and also has appointed a chief safety officer and hired specialized employees who can help with relationship violence. 
Also, that police chief, the one who said the police basically didn't have a reason to think Roland was dangerous, retired in October 2019. And Ruth Watkins, the president of the university, announced she was stepping down this spring in 2021. Lauren's parents also filed a lawsuit, which was settled for $10.5 million, and the university will pay another $3 million to the Lauren McCluskey Foundation, which funds campus safety efforts across the nation. But like the Clearys, it wasn't about the money for the McCluskeys. Their goal was to bring awareness to student safety. Matt said, quote, the parents deserve to know that the university is going to do the very best job they can to protect their student. And that is not only increasing a budget or hiring a person, but it's going to be a cultural change where, in fact, they really embrace what went wrong and embrace responsibility, end quote. And like the Clearys, the McCluskeys have actually pledged their settlement money to the foundation. The foundation champions a pledge called Lauren's Promise, in which professors at more than 100 campuses so far have endorsed as a message to their students. And I can proudly say that I am one of those professors. The pledge is 11 words, which reads, I will listen and believe you if someone is threatening you. This brings us to the end of Lauren's story when a cry for help wasn't enough. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle. <laughs>